you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 3. We're looking at verse, we're looking at chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, the problem is that chapter 4, verse 1 in Philippians starts off with a therefore, which means that to understand chapter 4, verse 1, we've got to look at chapter 3. So if you would, just please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We've been working our way through, um, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 10. We're at the tail end of Matthew chapter 10, in which it says, whoever receives you receives me and him who sent me. And then Jesus goes on to make this statement. He says, whoever receives you, or or, excuse me, I'm misquoting it. Whoever receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Whoever receives a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of the littlest of these, it's a reference to just baby, baby, brand new believer Christian, whoever gives a cup of water to one of the littlest of these, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus has this chapter, this whole chapter, Matthew chapter 10, talking about the need to go out and to be telling people about the gospel, about the good news. And at the tail end of that chapter, he assures his disciples, he assures his followers that if we're serious about the business of evangelism, there's a reward for it that there is blessing for those of us who will go out and proclaim the good news. So we've been taking the last several weeks to kind of consider that. And we looked initially in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, building on the foundation that is Christ and building with diamonds and gold and precious stones and not with wood, straw, hay, stubble, those materials. Then we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in which Paul admonishes the Corinthian church to run the race that is set before them, to not run aimlessly or to box as though they're beating at the air, but to run with the purpose of winning the prize. And we looked last week, he uses the word there, Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. The, all, it's an olive wreath. It's nothing elaborate. It's not like a gold fancy crown. He uses that same word here in Philippians. The question was posed, what does it mean really to run the race set before us? What does that look like? And I think you begin to get a glimpse of it here in Philippians. Specifically, we're going to be looking today at verses 17, chapter 3, verses 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. But to give you the context, I'm going to start off, we're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 3. So look with me. We will read the text, then we will pray, and we will, we will get to work. It says in Philippians chapter 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. For by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Sorry, there's no four there. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you sent someone at some point in time to tell us about your son. We say thank you for that person. And Lord, we realize that you sent someone at some point in time to disciple us, to give us an example to follow and to help us to grow into maturity. We just say thank you for that person. Lord, as we, your people, gather here today, I pray that you would drive it home into our hearts and into our understanding, Father, that we are still called to imitate those who who live the Christian life with excellence, to imitate them and to also seek to be an example to others. Would you show us that this morning, Lord? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This last week, I was reading about the royal crown, the imperial state crown that the Queen of England only wears on occasions when she opens a session of Parliament. They only wear it when they give a throne speech. The Queen of England gives a throne speech to Parliament, and she wears this crown. I was reading Paul Burrell, who is the chief butler. He has served Queen Elizabeth, and he also has served for a period of time as Uh, Princess Diana's butler, and he was reflecting on the fact that they never wear this thing, but on occasion, when they open up Parliament, they give a throne speech, Queen Elizabeth, she'll stand, she'll take take her place there, and she'll put this crown on, 
uh, and that's the only time she ever really wears it. The thing is heavy. And because of its heft, she's got to practice wearing it, or else when she stands up to give the throne speech, you know, she could lose the thing off the top of her head. It's made of gold, which is very soft metal, and you don't want this thing going rolling down the aisle of Parliament. You know, that wouldn't be good. Because of its softness, you, you could seriously damage it. And so he was reflecting on the fact that one evening as he was leaving the queen's royal chambers, she has an apartment there, uh, a special set of private chambers where she does her administrative work. And as he was leaving, the lights were turned down, and he was reflecting on the fact that she was getting ready for the throne speech, and so they'd had the, the crown brought over from the treasury, wherever it's kept, and she was practicing wearing this thing in the evening, getting ready for her crown speech. It's got over 4,000 diamonds. It's got over 300 pearls. It's got these giant diamonds. They've got one called the Star of Africa. It's the largest diamond ever found to date in the history of the world. It's enormous. The thing glitters. It shines. He said the lights in the apartment were turned down low, and he said this thing just sort of gathered all of the light in the room and sparkled it all around her. And he was quite taken with its beauty. Now, if I were to wear a crown, you probably would not be taken with its beauty. You'd probably think, why is this guy wearing a crown? <laughs> I grew up in Texas, and as I was studying this this week, I was thinking, you know, boys growing up in Texas, what I did for a summer job, I herded goats and worked with cattle. Uh, could you just see a fellow out in the blistering heat wearing a, you know, 10-pound crown with millions of dollars worth of diamonds on it, you know, and the satin and the velvet and all this sort of stuff, it, it looked pretty ridiculous. I, I couldn't see myself wearing it. Some of you might say, you know, I'd actually like to see that. That would be quite the sight, you know, sweating out there in the Texas heat with a, with a crown on. As we talk about crowns, they're not really a part of our life. It's not something we would ever observe. It's not something that, you know, we're going to make our way into the kitchen and, oh, there's my husband wearing his crown. You know, it's not like, let's kick back in the lazy boy and, and watch the football game on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, hey, where's my crown? I want to make sure I've got my crown on as I'm cheering for my team. You know, that's not, it's, it's totally foreign to us for the most part. It doesn't really register. Paul says to the church of Philippi, you guys are my joy and my crown. Now, the word here, and I've already alluded to this, is not, Greek word is not diadema. Okay, I just mispronounced it. Whatever, it's fine. It's not diadema, diadema, which would be royal crown. It's stephanos, which is victor's crown. It's a crown that they would award to an athlete after he has successfully competed and won in the Olympic Games. It'd be comparable more to a gold medal. Now, again, some of us, that's a foreign concept. We're not athletic. We don't compete. Not all of us are from Texas. Not all of us grew up playing high school football. Not all of us grew up playing hockey either just because it's so stinking expensive. We can't afford to get out on the ice. And so for some of us in this room, we don't know what it is to compete or to succeed necessarily in an athletic competition. I am a couch potato. You know that. 
I know that. I like to sit in my lazy boy eating Twinkies, okay? So I'm not really big on strenuous effort. And you know that. Maybe some of you are in here as well. So what does a victor's crown look like to Josh Claycamp? Last week, over the, or two weeks ago over the candidate weekend, uh, I was charged by my wife with a responsibility to repair our fireplace. Uh, it had been built, fireplace had been built with a plywood box. Some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound right. Uh, you're going to build a fire inside of a plywood box. That's exactly right. It was a, it was a fire hazard. Uh, the owner before me had decided that this plywood box would look pretty and stained and everything, except for the fact that if you build a fire in it, you'll die. So we couldn't really uh, use it. It wasn't functional. So Shanti gave me the responsibility. We own this house now. We want to have a fire in the winter. Make it work. Okay, I'm the man. This is what I do, right? Hit your pants, tighten your belt. I'm supposed to make this house livable for my family. So construction, or I should say destruction, went fairly well. You know, I'm good at that. Swing a hammer, knock thing to pieces. And then over the Canada Day weekend, the four-day weekend that we had there, I was cutting stone, working with mortar. I'm no good with a trowel. So most of it was like, you know, you're kind of slapping this stuff on, and then it's like falling off, and so you're taking your hand, and you're just like kind of going like that, you know, and it's getting all over the place. It's nasty. It's caustic. It dries out your hands. I got the thing built. Okay, some of you are laughing. You're like, does this story have a happy ending? Yes, it does. It does. By the grace of God, it does. It looks good. I mean, I'm not going to brag. I'm going to brag a little bit, okay? (laughs) When we turn the lights down low, we use this black river rock. It looks beautiful. It doesn't quite shine the same way that a diamond does, okay? But you turn the lights down low, it's got the white mantle there with the black river rock. It's all shiny. Now, most of you, you're like, okay, whatever. It's a fireplace. I built that fireplace, okay? <laughs> so just bear with me, all right? I'm going to tell my story, and you're going to like it, all right? So when we sit there at night, before it's time to go to bed, turn the lights down low, I look over at that fireplace. Like, That's right. It's a good-looking fireplace over there. I'll mention it. Shanti, did you happen to notice that fireplace? Of course she's noticed it. People come over. Ryan Blindberg was over at my house the other day. He's seen it like four or five times now. He comes in, hey, Ryan, how's it going? Good. Hey, did you see my fireplace? Yeah, like four or five times now you pointed it out to me. Rob C. rents the, room, rents the basement room in the, in the basement, the apartment in the basement. He comes upstairs. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Good. He lives with us. He's seen it probably like a thousand times now. Did you see my fireplace? You know, I want to draw their attention to it. I labored for it. I worked for it. I built it. It looks amazing. And if you notice the slight insignificant flaws in it, you don't need to comment on those things either, okay? <laughs> it's my fireplace. I built this thing. And it's awesome. And I love it. It looks good. Now, if you've ever done anything like that, if you've ever engaged in any kind of project like that, any kind of work like that, you know that there's a certain element of pride, there's a certain element of joy in knowing that you had a hand in building this thing, okay? All the ladies in the room, if you craft, you do those little scrapbooks, or if you quilt, you make fancy little quilts, you know what I'm talking about. 
For any guy in here who's ever had to go out and chop down a Christmas tree or shovel the driveway or do anything like that, you can all relate to the fact that at the end of that chore, whatever chore it might have been, how insignificant of a chore it might even have been, you're happy to see a clean shoveled driveway. You're happy to have a nice Christmas tree put up in your living room for your wife to now decorate and do whatever she's going to do with it. You take pride in those things. Paul's statement here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he makes the statement, my brothers whom I love and long for. Do you think he's emotionally invested in these guys? Absolutely he is. Look at what he calls them. My joy, my crown. It's a thing that he takes profound pleasure in. He likes the fact that he's had a hand in building the church at Philippi. My joy and my crown. Now, step back for a second and let's apply that to us. That would be similar to someone saying to you, I take joy in how you're living. I understand that I had a small part, a small role to play in the way that you're living. I labored for you to be living the life that you're now living in Christ, and I want you to know that I take incredible joy in who you are and what you're doing and how you're living. You make me happy. We're talking about crowns. And the question has come up, okay, so we're supposed to live the Christian life. We're supposed to understand that there's reward coming. We're supposed to understand that Christ is going to reward us for whatever it is we do. So what is it we're supposed to do? You need to understand that the blessing that is there for you as a Christian is connected to the church. It's connected to people. There's nothing else in this world that will pass from this world into the one to come except for people. And so as we are laboring in this life for our king, the labor we're called to be engaged in is not necessarily a labor for a bigger bank account, labor for a bigger house, and as sad as I am to say it, you know, fireplace, as nice as it is to build those things, that's not ultimately the most significant thing in life. Do you know what the most significant thing in life is? Apart from Jesus Christ, you are. The person sitting next to you. You guys are what matters. You guys are what is going to last. Paul says to the church here at Philippi, you're my joy, you're my crown. Notice, though, that in the midst of saying this, in chapter 4, verse 1, it begins with a therefore. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a transitional statement. From there, he's going to move over to verse 2. He's going to talk about Yodia and Syntyche, and he's going to exhort these two to agree. There's obviously division and disagreement going on in the church there in Philippi. This is a transitional verse, though, that is linking what is to follow to what has already come before, what has preceded it. He says, therefore and thus, as a result of what I've said, this is how you need to stand firm in the Lord. To understand what he's saying, you need to go back, the therefore. It links back to, if you go back to verse 17, 
brothers, he makes the statement, join in imitating me. In other words, there are people who are following my example. There are people who are living life, the Christian life, the way that I am. His exhortation to the church of Philippi, and these are people he loves and longs for. These are people that he considers his joy. His exhortation to them is, you guys need to imitate me. There are others that are already doing this, and he exhorts them in verse 17, join whomever these other individuals are, join them in imitating me. And then he, he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's a right way to live the Christian life, and then there is the wrong way to live the Christian life. And he has already planted this church, he's already preached the gospel to them, and now his exhortation to them is, finish running the race, follow my lead. There's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. In the very next verse, verse 18, he makes this statement, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, it's very possible. We don't know this with any certainty, but it's very possible that Paul utilized what they refer to as an amanuensis or a secretary to write this letter. Uh, He's in prison when this letter is written, so it's entirely likely that if he didn't write it himself, he may have dictated it to someone Uh, He he was known to use an amanuensis or a secretary to dictate other correspondence. We have other books in the Bible that are clearly written by someone other than Paul. So he was known to to use this practice. Can you imagine, now every word of Scripture is inspired. Can you imagine Paul going on saying, to the church of Philippi, I want you guys, here I am in prison, to continue imitating me, to join others who are imitating me, follow my example. And then he makes a statement, you know, there are many who, and the guy's sitting there taking notes and he's, he's hustling to catch up, you know, as Paul's talking, he's writing quickly to try and catch every word that Paul is saying. And he's writing and he, and he stops and he's just listening and he's just waiting for Paul to keep talking. And Paul doesn't say anything. And he looks over and there he is, the apostle in prison, crying in tears, not because he's in prison, but because there are people who claim to be Christian, people that he's had some interaction with, but they're not really serving the Lord Jesus Christ, they're serving something else. He says, I want you guys to join with me, imitate, join others in imitating me. You know, there are some people, and then he just begins to cry. He says, I tell you this even with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross. He says, verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Minds are set on earthly things. Now, the problem with these individuals 
who claim to be followers of Christ is that they have the wrong sorts of appetite. Paul's statement is that their God is their belly. He fleshes that out and says basically their minds are set on earthly things. You can read it very, very literally and say that the thing that these false Christians that claim to be Christians but are clearly not following Christ, the thing that governs their lives, the thing that motivates them, you know, in a literal sense could be the food that they eat. That's possible. He steps back away from that, that very literal expression, and he flushes it out. They've, they've got their minds set on earthly things. So their appetites, it could be literal food, or Paul could be using this expression in a, more of a metaphorical sense. At this point, we can say this much with certainty. The thing that governs them, the thing that they orient their life around, is not Jesus Christ. It's certain particular appetites, whether it's literally food or other things, such as being popular, such as maybe being successful in business. Perhaps they live for things like pleasure, leisure. Perhaps they're in love with the comfortable life. Perhaps they are full-blown heretics. You know, at the very beginning of chapter 3, Paul's warning to them is, beware of the dogs who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about individuals who teach that circumcision is a necessary practice in order to be saved and go to heaven. He goes on to say, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put all our confidence in Jesus Christ. So there's clearly a group of teachers. Maybe they are here in this church in Philippi. Maybe not. Maybe they're just sort of out there. This church has some awareness of them, some understanding of them. Maybe he's referring to those individuals. Maybe by the time he comes all the way down here to the tail end of chapter 3, his thinking has shifted to a totally different group of individuals. This much we can say with certainty, it is not Jesus Christ that they worship. So Paul's admonition here to these people that he loves and he longs for, it goes two ways. Number one, follow him, follow his example. Number two, avoid the example of people whose ultimate priority in life is whatever drives their appetite such as food, or cars, or stuff, or leisure, or pleasure. Whatever their appetites are, they're not following Jesus. You don't follow them. You follow Paul. You follow people who follow Paul. You follow people who follow the pattern of the apostles. And so that brings us to you and me. You know, it's a very common practice. Person gets saved, it's a common pattern, that's what I mean to say. A person gets saved, everything is new to him. He's into the Bible, he's going to church on Sundays, he's invested in life group, he's just soaking it all up. It all seems just really, really fun and really awesome. And he's grateful to know the Lord. And he's beginning to make adjustments in his life in terms of how to walk and live the Christian life. And at some point in time, sooner or later, we begin to take criticism for our faith. We begin to encounter difficulties. Cynicism creeps in. Maybe bitterness. A little bit of hurt and heartache over whatever tragedy we've suffered. 
And before long, you know what ends up happening? We fall in love with this idea that if we were really doing it right, maybe we would never experience certain criticisms or certain difficulties or certain trials. And sometimes we engage in things that create heartache and harm in our life because we're following Christ and we've been told that's the way to follow Christ and we begin to question those who are teaching these things to us. And I've seen it happen where people begin to get very critical. Very critical. We've gone from being a new believer who's excited to follow Christ, encounters a little difficulty, encounters a little persecution, gets cynical, and then begins to become very critical of others, maybe even people in pastoral leadership, maybe life group leaders. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude. literally means joy in another's harm. You see it come to the point where individuals take delight in these uppity-ups, these good people who encounter difficulty. They reassure themselves that they don't have to live the Christian life the way they see other people living the Christian life because those people experience harm and that's what they deserve. That's an attitude that sometimes creeps in, where we take pleasure in our brothers and sisters who experience heartache as a result of trying to follow what they see in the Bible. Now, this text confronts us because Paul talks about people who aren't even Christian. And when he talks about them, he talks about them with tears. He's not happy to see these individuals whose God is their belly following their false God. He's not happy to see these individuals who are chasing after worldly things, have their minds set on worldly things. He's not happy to see them doing that. Sometimes within the church, we take pleasure in seeing people who are lost, who are chasing after the world, when that goes sideways and then they encounter the consequences of their action, rather than weeping for them and the foolishness of their choices, we sometimes get arrogant and say, well, that guy just got what he deserved. And we take joy in it. Within the church, we see people striving to live the Christian life. We see, them, we see them experience difficulty, and when they get knocked down at work, get made fun of, or when bad things happen, we think to ourselves, well, that's just because, you know, they're just, they're just trying to be goody-two-shoes Christians. Whether you are delighting in fellow believers trying to live for the Lord, or you're delighting in sinful people chasing after the world, and you see both individuals experiencing heartache and difficulty, whether one's trying to serve the Lord or whether one's chasing after the world, 
Both attitudes are inconsistent with the attitude that Paul gives us. And in case you didn't notice it, he says, follow my example. And the example he calls us to follow is not one of delight in another's harm, not one of joy in another's misery, but he writes with tears. He doesn't take any joy in Christians being persecuted, and he doesn't take any joy in unbelievers chasing after the world. What brings him joy is a church at Philippi. A small band of Christians, just like you and me, gathered together in a room, worshiping the Lord, following after Christ. His exhortation to them is, don't follow the guys that bring me tears. Follow me. Now, what that means is, when we come into the church, we ought to be capable of finding somebody admirable whom we can imitate. I'm going to ask you this question. Is there someone here that you really admire for the way that they live their life for the Lord? Do you seek to imitate them? Why not? If no, why not? As you consider the outcome of their life, as you consider all the blessings that they've experienced as a result of walking with the Lord, why wouldn't you want to pursue that as well? The pattern laid out for us here by Paul, Church of Philippi, is that as we are living the Christian life, there ought to be people that we should imitate. Paul calls us to imitate him. And what does Paul do in this passage? He sets himself up as an example, which means, number one, we're called to imitate people. Now, here's where it gets really tough. Number two, at some point in time, we're called also to be an example. You guys want a crown. You want the joy of hearing Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. You want the reward. Those are wonderful things that the Bible exhorts you to pursue. But you understand it's found in chasing after Jesus and a part of learning to be a good disciple, a follower of Christ, has got to be found in seeking after someone you can imitate. And sooner or later, it has to flesh itself out to where you are setting the example for someone else. So it brings me to my second question. How many of you can point to someone besides your children? That's the easy one. We've all got, most of us have got kids that follow us, imitate us. How many of you can point to someone besides your children who so admire your walk with the Lord that they're sitting down with you over coffee asking you questions, asking how you live the Christian life, and they're seeking to follow you? Now, as a pastor, this is an incredibly humbling passage. I understand that I am called to set an example. And I just want to confess to you guys, I haven't always set the best example. 
And for that, I'm sorry. And I apologize. You know, I take great comfort in the fact that Paul says that he had all kinds of reasons to be proud, but he considered all of that past and all of it rubbish for the sake of chasing after Christ. And he makes the statement, I don't consider that I'm already perfect either, but I'm pressing on for the upward call of Christ. So I'm saying to you today, I know that I have failed. Not epically, like some of you are looking at me like, what did you do? I haven't like, you know, robbed a bank or killed anyone or anything, you know. But there have been failures. Pastors are human. I recognize, like everyone else, I'm a failure. But I want to succeed. And in that spirit, you can't read a text like this from Philippians and not mention the fact that as a pastor, you're supposed to be an example. And so I say to you today, knowing full well that I have failed on occasion, and knowing full well, as a sinful man, I'll probably, I know I will absolutely fail you again in the future. I still invite you to follow the example that I set for you in so much as I follow Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you is that in imitating me, you would also seek to set an example for others. A number of weeks ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. He is a piano teacher. He's starting a He's starting a business, piano teaching. He's giving lessons. And he was reflecting on a conversation that he'd had with another wiser, more experienced piano teacher. And, and this piano teacher asked him the question, how will you teach your students to play, play the piano in such a way that you won't pass on your bad habits and your, you know, your bad tendencies? And it's an eye-opening question because we all have bad habits and bad tendencies. Do we think critically about the fact that we're called to reproduce our lives into the lives of others in such a way where, by God's grace, we pass on all of Jesus and not all of the bad habits and bad tendencies that too often come from Josh Claycan? You know, you don't even stop to think about that question. You don't even stop to ask that question unless you're actively seeking to set an example for someone. Which means as I reflect on this passage here, when Paul says, you are my joy, my crown, my beloved, the people I love and I long for, you got to know that at the end of the day, he took great joy in whatever example, whatever evidence of grace he saw in their life as they're following Christ. But you also got to know, he saw things in them probably that were a mirror of him. And you got to know that for everything he tried to do to make these guys reflect the image and the character of Christ, it showed him to himself in such a way that as he's trying to reproduce himself in others, 
He, as the apostle, is able to see how he himself can be more like Jesus. If you guys want the crown, if you want the reward, if you want to be all that you can be as a Christian, you need to know that you will never, ever arrive unless you follow the command of Christ, in which he said, go and make disciples, in which he clearly set the example, in which every apostle which followed him also saw fit to set an example. You will simply not see some of your weaknesses, some of your failures. You will never be alerted to the fact of your shortcomings because you'll never see them. You're blind to them. But you'll see them when you try to reproduce the life of Christ in others. There's a gentleman. His name is Bob Bob Brockman. Uh, a number of years ago, I attended Central Baptist Church in College Station, Bryan College Station, Texas. My wife is a graduate, graduate from the University of Texas A&M. We went to church at this church, Central Baptist. Pastor, love this man, Chris Osborne. He's a wonderful pastor. I volunteered for a period of time in the nursery with a gentleman by the name of Bob Brockman. To look at him, you would never have known it, but he was a multimillionaire. He's the CEO of Reynolds and Reynolds. It's a conglomerate, has offices all over the world. They develop accounting software and accounting paperwork for all manner of large organizations. Do you know what the number one joy in Bob Rockman's life was? It was pouring his life into children, in the children's ministry and seeking to make them more and more like Christ. He's a multimillionaire. You would never have guessed it. I never even knew it. I went to church with the man for three years. I would never have known he was a millionaire, except for the fact that I worked as a, a day laborer in a horticulture business, and I was out by the airport one day doing, trimming shrubs, and he got out of a limo at the entrance to the airport there. It's a small regional airport there at College Bryan Station. Bryan college station. He's wearing a three-piece suit, and he's got a manservant toting his luggage. And I'm sitting there going, I think I know that guy. Yeah, like I volunteered in the nursery with that guy. Like, whoa, he's, wearing, he's dressed to the nines. He looks like he's a millionaire. And he comes up to me. I'm sweating. This heat we're experiencing right now, it's like all the time in Texas. He comes up to me in a three-piece suit. I mean, I don't know. It must have been like a $1,000 suit. Says, Josh, how's it going? Good to see you. I'm sweating, soaking, dripping with sweat. He throws his arms around me and gives me the biggest bear hug in the world. What are you doing here? Oh, I've got a business meeting in Europe. I'm going to be on an overnight flight to Europe and blah, blah, blah. You're going to Europe? What are you doing in Europe? Well, I'm, I kind of run this little business. It's, uh, you know, we've got offices all over the world. Oh, you know, and I, I sat with this man in a nursery. You know, you got diapers and bottles and, you know, kids are cute for like the first five minutes and then they're screaming bloody murder because they want their mother, you know, and, and we're serving in this ministry like just trying to love on kids and, 
after that, like, he, I never knew that he was a multimillionaire until I saw him at the airport. After that, we were talking one day. I said, tell me, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, you know, and he kind of went on. And he's got money like you wouldn't believe. And I mean, he never, he didn't say that. I just, I just knew because I started asking people, did you know this guy's a millionaire? Oh, yeah, like, I knew that. So I asked him one day. I said, you know, like, you live in a middle-sized house. You live you know, very frugally, like, the only time I've ever even glimpsed the fact that you were wealthy was when you were at the airport. He's like, well, I got to play the part, you know, like, people are expecting a guy a certain way. I try, I only, I only have to dress that way when I'm playing the role of CEO of a major multi-billion dollar corporation, you know. For the most part, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that way. I said, why? Why? You got money, man. You can pay people to do all the stuff for you, you know. He's, he says, Josh, I, I work here in the children's ministry at Central Baptist says, you know the word I hear more often than any other word working with these kids? You've heard it too if you're a mom or a dad. Mine. This toy is mine. This bottle is mine. I want these kids to love Jesus. I want them to know that in Christ we're all brothers and sisters. I want them to know that there's more blessing in giving than in receiving. And I cannot, for a moment, use this money on myself in an indulgent manner when the cry of my heart is to see these kids grow up generous, selfless, and sacrificial, just like Jesus Christ. Do you know what Bob Brockman's joy and crown in life was? It was not his business success. It was the kids that he led to look like Jesus Christ. All the money stays behind. The kids will be with him forever. Church, I beg you, seek a crown. And on top of that, I beg you, seek it in trying to set an example for other people to follow Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.